In this recording, I'd like to learn through a strange medrash in Esther Rabbah, which is on the book of Esther. It records a very unusual sounding conversation between Haman and Ahasuerosh when Haman is trying to get Ahasuerosh to agree to kill the Jews. But we're going to try to read the Medrash and uncover some of the philosophical issues that the Medrash is discussing. And this is based on the Manos HaLevi, one of the greatest commentaries on the Book of Esther by Rab Shlomo Alkabetz, the author of Lechadodi. And he already begins reading this Medrash in a philosophical way. So we'll use his approach and then we'll add a little bit to it at the end. The Medrash is in Esther Rabbah, Zion Yudbez. It's on the verse in the Megillah, Perak Gimel, Pasuk Ches, where the scene is is that Haman comes to Ahasuerosh and he's trying to explain to him why it's worthwhile for him to have this genocide against the Jews. And Chazal have many different traditions of what conversation took place between them. But many of these are not literally the conversation that Haman and Ahasuerosh had, but they're ways that Chazal imagine what anti-Semites over history have accused the Jews and the reasons they've given for their hatred of the Jews. So many of these traditions are very very insightful with regard to what it is that anti-Semites don't like about the Jews. And of course, the Medrash explains why they're wrong. And these accusations or fears are irrational things that they've made up just to justify the real reason why they hate the Jews, which is because of what the Jews stand for. So we're going to look at one of these Midrashim and try to uncover what teaching this Medrash is imparting to us. The Medrash records Haman as starting off, Amar Shinehon Ravrevan. Haman says to Achashverosh, the Jews have huge teeth, meaning they're always eating. So this is a reference to the Jewish calendar that the Jews have so many holidays on their calendar, they're always feasting. Sha'ochlin v'shosin v'omrim oneg Shabbos, oneg Yom Tov. They always have feasts for Shabbos and for Yom Tov, for holidays. They're ruining the economy, says Haman, because they're spending their money on eating and feasting, so they're destroying the economy. Literally, Haman says that they diminish the amount of money in the world. So that's obviously a very strange claim, because if they're spending their own money, all that does is diminish their net worth, but the money remains the same throughout the world. So it's unclear what Haman is saying over here. The commentators explain that what he's referring to is that when the Jews buy food for their holidays and Shabbos, they spend more than the market value because the price goes up, it surges before a holiday because everyone's going to buy things. It's like all the sales that happen in the stores right after the holiday seasons because during the holiday season, people are willing to spend more because they need the material. So that's what Haman is claiming, that because the Jews have so many holidays and Shabbos and all these feasts, they drive up prices and they ruin the economy. Of course, this is a common trope of anti-Semites, that the Jews are ruining the economy or controlling the economy, something to do with finances and economics. Now Haman proceeds to list all of the holidays that he's referring to. So he says, Chad Shabta. Every seven days they have a Shabbos. Every 30 days they have Rosh Chodesh. He lists five holidays on the Jewish calendar. In Nisan, there's Pesach. In Sivan, there's Shavuos. And in Tishrei, there's the New Year, which is Rosh Hashanah, the Great Fast, which is Yom Kippur, and the Holiday of Booths, which is Sukkot. So there's seven holidays which Haman lists over here. There's Shabbos, there's Rosh Chodesh, then Pesach, Shavuos, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and Sukkot. 
So now Achashverosh responds. He says to Haman, that is their religion. That is what they're commanded in the Torah. So what do you want from them? Of course they're keeping their holidays. What else would they do? That's the whole Jewish religion. Amar lo Haman, so Haman responds, Ilu hayu mishamrin es mo'adehem u'mo'adeinu yafeh hayu osin. Haman says if they would keep their holidays and our holidays, meaning both the Jewish and the non-Jewish holidays, then that would be fine. So in response to Achashverosh's response to him, Haman modifies his position and he says, listen, I'm okay with them keeping their holidays, but they also should keep our holidays. But they despise your holidays, Osim. That's what it says in the Megillah that Haman told Achashverosh they don't follow the religion of the king. What does that mean? The Medrash explains, They don't observe the holidays of Clandus or Saturnalia. Now, Saturnalia, we know, is a very famous ancient holiday in the Roman Empire. It's in honor of the Saturn god. So it's a pagan holiday. It was held at the end of December, and it was one of their major annual holidays. We have all sorts of records of the celebrations that would go on then. So Haman is upset that the Jews refused to celebrate Saturnalia in addition to all of their other holidays. Now, Clandus seems to be a reference to Christmas, which in Greek is also called Kalanda. So it seems to be a reference to that holiday. And Christmas and Saturnalia also have certain connections and may be historically related. So Haman's claim now is that the Jews don't observe these non-Jewish holidays, which makes them pariahs to society. So now the Medrash records God's response to Haman's anti-Semitic accusations. Amar lo HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Russia. God says to him, you wicked, evil man. You're trying to destroy their holidays, the Jewish festivals. I am going to destroy you, says God. And they are now going to add another holiday because you were destroyed. So this is the irony of all ironies that here Haman set out to ruin the Jewish calendar and to destroy the Jewish holidays. And God destroyed him instead. And now the Jews have an additional festival in addition to the ones that Haman listed to celebrate his downfall. So that's the final step of this Medrash. So just to review the major steps of this Medrash, and then we're going to try to make sense of it. First, Haman attacks the Jewish holidays. And he claims that the Jews are terrible people because they observe their festivals. Step number two is that Achashverosh tells him, well, that's their religion. So Haman modifies his claim and he says that they should follow the Jewish holidays in addition to the non-Jewish holidays. Why can't they observe both? And step number three is that God steps in and he says to Haman, because you attack the Jewish holidays, your destruction is going to precipitate a new holiday being added to the Jewish calendar. So let's try to make sense of these steps in the Medrash and what the deeper meaning is. And we're going to start with the explanation of the Manos HaLevi in his introduction. He goes through the first step of this Medrash, why Haman was against these seven holidays that he listed. And he suggests a very nice explanation. This is based on the Sefer HaIkrim from Rav Yosef Albo, one of the central books of medieval Jewish philosophy. So the Sefer HaIkrim lists that there are seven arguments in favor of divine providence, of hashkacha, that God runs the world. This is in section four, chapter eight, nine, and 10. 
The first argument, he says, is against people who think that nature is eternal, it's unchanging, that there is no being who's able to change the laws of nature. And the argument against this is from dry land, because the Sefer Ikrim says that according to the laws of nature, if it was static, so then the whole world, all of the land should be covered in water. And there should be no trees or vegetation or dry land to live on. But because God stepped in and put the water into the ocean, so therefore there's dry land. So the fact that there's dry land indicates that God runs the world, that he is able to suspend the laws of nature. The second argument is from rain, because since rain is necessary for all of life, and it comes at different times and with different intensity, it's not like it just runs on its own, but there's obviously some variation in the rain cycle. So that again indicates that God is running the world and providing the resources for us to be able to live. The third proof is very interesting. He says that very often you see that a smart or powerful person will go after someone and try to hurt them. And not only will that plan fail, they won't be able to hurt that person, but sometimes it backfires and it will in fact hurt the person who was trying to harm the other person. Even though the person they were trying to harm is much weaker or less intelligent. So that proves that God is running the world and that he was the one that caused this to backfire. The fourth proof is because very often you see that someone who sins, who's evil in a particular way, will get punished in that specific way. So criminals are often punished or they meet their downfall in specifically the way in which they caused harm. So that again shows that God is running the world and punishing them with intention. The fifth proof is from dreams, and this is based on a verse in Eov, which says that God will sometimes step in and give someone information in a dream. So that obviously shows that he is running the world. The sixth proof is from human intelligence, which God gave us. It cannot be just in order to help us survive because we see that the animal kingdom survives and they live even without the intelligence that human beings were given. So the special intelligence that God endowed human beings for must be in order to give us something more than just physical survival, which is to have a relationship with God and to understand that he is running the world and our lives. And finally, the seventh proof has two parts to it. So you can focus on either part. One is that because God is perfect, so part of perfection would be God being involved and running our lives. So as a part of his perfection, it would follow that he is running the world and our lives. And the second part of this is that because human beings were created as the pinnacle of God's creation, so as part of occupying that exalted position, it would follow that God is actively involved in our lives and with what's going on with us. So those are the Sefer HaIkrim's seven proofs for God's providence. And there's more to it. He divides those seven proofs into three different categories. And he's also trying to argue specifically that God has hashkacha pratis, which means individual providence on human beings, as opposed to hashkacha klalis, which is a more general providence that God has on the species, but without 
focusing on each individual. But the specific philosophical details of the Sefer Ikrim's presentation are not our focus. We're interested in those seven proofs that he offers for divine providence. So the Manos Halevi points out that in Haman's list of Jewish holidays, which he found offensive, there were also seven holidays that he enumerated. There was, again, Shabbos, Rosh Chodesh, Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Sukkot, Pesach, and Shavuot. So those seven holidays, the Manos Halevi ingeniously connects with the seven core arguments in favor of God's Hashkacha. And this is a very nice idea because basically it indicates that when we go through the Jewish calendar year, on each holiday, we are celebrating and reinforcing another one of the arguments for God's providence. Now, the Manos HaLevi's list is a little different than the Sefer HaIkrim. In one place, he changes one of the proofs, but we're going to see how he connects this basic list proving God's Hashkacha with the seven major holidays that we celebrate. So one argument was that God runs the world. He changes nature by the fact that there's dry land and the water is congregated in the oceans. That is parallel to Shabbos because the day of Shabbos celebrates that God created the world and that he's able to suspend the laws of nature when necessary. So Shabbos is the day when we remind ourselves of God's command of nature and that it doesn't just run automatically with scientific rules. The last proof of the Ikrim was based on God's perfection and the exalted place that human beings occupy in creation. So the Manos HaLevi says that's parallel to Rosh Chodesh because the point of Rosh Chodesh is to uproot the belief that the moon has some sort of power like the ancient pagans thought when they saw the moon disappear and then return. So they had all sorts of mythological explanations about fights going on in heaven and the moon was its own force. So by God commanding the Jews to be aware of the moon's cycle in order to create the calendar, he removed the edge from the cycle of the moon. They didn't give it these mythological explanations anymore, but they treated it as something that God had created and instituted this process that would work so that they could set up their calendar. So Rosh Chodesh was the indication that the moon is not a separate force, but that God had created the entire world and he is the only force. And the purpose of it was for human beings to perfect themselves into their potential. So Rosh Chodesh is the day that we celebrate that God is the perfect creator of all creation and that we human beings are specially connected to him. Another proof from the Sefer HaIkrim was that people often plot against others and the plot backfires and they end up harmed by it, even though they're more intelligent or more powerful than the person they're going after. So the Manus HaLevi connects that with Pesach. He says that's exactly what happened at Pesach, that Paro and the Egyptians tried to harm the Jewish people, but it backfired and the Jewish people grew and they became a nation and God saved them and that's how they developed into the Jewish people. So on Pesach, we celebrate that proof for God's providence that even though it looks like some people are going to be harmed, God saves them and he ends up turning it back on their aggressor. A fourth argument that the Sefer Ikrim had is because human beings are endowed with intelligence, which is not necessary for survival because we see animals surviving without that intelligence. So the intelligence must have been given to us in order to connect with God. Says the Manos HaLevi, that is parallel to Shavuos for obvious reasons, because on Shavuos we celebrate the giving of the Torah, 
which is an indication of our ability to study Torah and to process things at a higher level than animals. So that's what we're celebrating, that God gave us this endowed ability to reason in order to connect with him. Now, the fifth argument that the Manos HaLevi lists is different from the Sefer HaIkrim's. The Sefer HaIkrim had an argument that God repays wicked people, mida keneged mida, however they try to sin and harm others, that's how they get punished. That's what the Sefer HaIkrim says, but the Manos HaLevi omits that argument from his list. And instead, he divides the final argument of the Sefer HaIkrim, which was based on God's perfection, and the special place that we humans occupy in creation. So the Manos HaLevi focuses on that second aspect, that we human beings are the pinnacle of creation, and that becomes his fifth argument. So in the Sefer HaIkrim, you could really find eight arguments. Just the last one, he subdivides into two, so he calls it seven. But the Manos HaLevi omits one of the earlier ones, and he uses that second idea of the final argument as his fifth. Either way, our goal is to try to understand the profundity of the Jewish calendar and all the holidays that are on it and how they enhance our relationship with God and our understanding of God's role in our lives. So the exact count is less important than the beautiful ideas that the Manos Halevi is developing. So the fifth argument, according to the Manos Halevi, is that because we occupy a very special, exalted place in creation, it must follow that God is involved in our lives. And that proof we're reminded of on Rosh Hashanah, because that is the day, according to one tradition, where Adam HaRishon, the first human being, Adam, was created. And therefore, every year we're judged on that day to see how we're using creation. And all of creation creation and the world is judged in light of how we as human beings are making use of it. So everything is judged based on our actions. So that reinforces the centrality of human beings to the world and our special connection to God. The sixth proof was that God gives information to people in dreams, and that's related to Yom Kippur. And he quotes the Gemara in Yuman, Daf Pechesem and Aleph, that there are certain signs that they give people on Yom Kippur from heaven about what kind of year they're going to have or where their standing is in heaven. So that's an indication that God sometimes communicates directly to us through dreams or other semi-supernatural mediums. And the last one is the Sefer HaIkrim said there's a proof for God's providence from rain and the fact that it doesn't come at an exact cycle, but there's some variation in how much it comes and when. So that is connected to Sukkot, of course, because Sukkot is the holiday of rain. That's when we're judged on rain, and that's when we pray for a good rainy season. So this is a very beautiful idea and a framework from the Manos HaLevi. Basically, he says that if we take the seven major holidays that Haman identified on the Jewish calendar, we can connect them with seven beautiful arguments that God is involved in our lives, that he runs the world and our lives, and he's taking care of us, and that our job is to be specially connected to God and to appreciate his role in our lives. Now, applying this back to Haman, why was Haman so against these Jewish holidays? So the Manos HaLevi explains very beautifully, and he says that the purpose of anti-Semites, and Haman was in a long list of anti-Semites, beginning with his ancestors on Malek, their goal is to break the relationship between God and the Jews. 
He says, when you look carefully at these stories, the anti-Semites can't stand that the Jews are so connected to God and that they live their lives based on his teachings and his guidance and feeling this close connection to him. So that's why Amalek, for example, attacks right before the Jews are accepting the Torah because they knew that if the Jews accepted the Torah, they were going to have this very powerful, eternal connection with God. So Amalek decided to attack right away to try to preempt that. And he says that's also what happened in the Hanukkah story, that they're trying to break the connection between God and the Jewish people. And that's what Haman's goal was, to try to break the Jews' connection with God and to turn God away from them so that he would abandon them. So that's why step number one of Haman's argument, Achashverosh, is that if the Jews continue to keep their holidays, they're going to reinforce that connection with God. And he goes through the seven major holidays and the implication being, as we just saw, that each of those holidays reinforces part of the special connection between God and the Jewish people. So the first step of Haman's argument is let's get rid of the holidays and then they won't have these reinforced connections with God. Now, for our sake, I think we learn how important the Jewish holidays are. In other words, Haman was trying to take them away because he understood their centrality. So we now have this very beautiful framework to understand what it is that we are reinforcing in ourselves and the trying to absorb on a theological level as we go through the calendar year and celebrate these holidays. Now, let's go to step two of Haman's arguments. After Ahasuerus doesn't buy it, so Haman says to him, well, at least they could also observe, in addition to the Jewish holidays, some of the non-Jewish ones, for example, Klandas and Saturnalia. So continuing with our philosophical interpretation of this medrash, let's try to understand what this second step means. So the Efea Naf says something very beautiful. He says, why did Haman choose specifically these two festivals out of all of the non-Jewish ones? And he answers this based on a very interesting tradition in the Gemara Navodah Zara and Aleph. The Gemara there is talking about two non-Jewish holidays, Klanda and Saturnura. So the medrash refers to them as Klandis and Saturnalia. The Gemara refers to it a little differently as Klanda and Saturnura, but it's the same holidays. And the Gemara offers a tradition for where these days came from. They're both around Tevis, which is the dead of winter. And the Gemara says that the first year that the days started to get shorter. So imagine you're the first human being on earth and you've never experienced this before. So Adam was afraid that the sun was going to entirely disappear as a result of his sin and the whole world was going to be destroyed. So he prayed and fasted for eight days. And then when he saw that it shifted and the days started to get longer, so then he understood that that was just the astronomical cycle. And then he felt better and he had an eight-day celebration because he realized that the world was going to survive. And then the next year when the cycle repeated itself, so Adam celebrated both of those times. So he celebrated the original eight-day fast day and then he celebrated an eight-day holiday. They both became holidays now in order to commemorate this difficult year that he had been through and the fact that this was just the general cycle of the year and the sun. 
So Adam ended up with two holidays, and then the Gemara says that those eventually became the pagan days of Clandus and Saturnalia. But the key point here for us is that according to the Gemara, Adam created those holidays, L'Shem Shamaim, or initially they were to celebrate God running the world. And then Behem Kavim L'Shem Avodas Kochavim. Later on, the idolaters came and they changed those holidays into idolatrous holidays. But initially, they were holidays about God, even though they were not Jewish holidays, but they were pure holidays focused on God. So that's why the Feyanaf says, Haman chose those two holidays because his argument was, I understand if the Jews don't want to celebrate real pagan idolatrous holidays, but these holidays initially started off towards God. Even though we've usurped them and we now celebrate them towards pagan idols, but why can't the Jews at least continue to celebrate them in their initial form? So that's why Haman focused on these two holidays because they are different than other holidays which began as pagan holidays. These holidays began as pure monotheistic holidays and then they were corrupted. So Haman wants to know why can't the Jews observe these holidays together with us and each group will do it for their own religious purpose. Now to put this argument in a more contemporary format, so there are many differences between how traditional religious people see the history and development and texts of their religions versus how academic scholars and historians see them. Now, without getting too much into wide-ranging and sometimes emotional debates between two very different methodologies, and without trying to simplify more complicated material, but basically the more traditional approach and the academic approach depend on what your starting assumptions are. So if you believe that these texts were given by God and that all of these rituals were given by God, then you view it differently than if you start with the more secular assumption that these things developed and people came up with them on their own. Now, one of the areas which this overall disagreement appears in is with regard to the history of the holidays. So academic historians will very often find connections between Jewish holidays or Christian holidays or any religious holidays with earlier holidays. Sometimes those holidays are pagan. And their claim is that these holidays morphed or their rituals were borrowed and adapted by the new religion in ways that fit their ideology. And there's many examples of this. Uh, For example, the Seder on Passover, there's all sorts of historical connections between that and the Greek way of feasting. The afikomen is even a Greek word. So there are certain historical connections that can be made in that regard. And many of the other Jewish holidays have a similar dynamic. So the three major festivals of Pesach, Sukkot, and Shavuos, according to secular historians, can be connected with earlier pagan rituals and festivals which centered around the agricultural year. Or Hanukkah can be connected with some of the winter holidays that we just talked about, Saturnalia 
and other pagan holidays that were in the winter and had lights associated with them. Now, historians do this also for Christian holidays. So if you're looking for connections between earlier and later holidays, you can come up with certain rituals that reappear in different traditions. And the question is really, how important is this? According to academic historians, this indicates the human origins of these holidays and how they adapt earlier cultures into their own, whereas a more traditional person could either reject the whole notion of it and say that they don't see any connection between these holidays, they're just superficial, or they might have another argument, which we'll get to in a few moments. Now, of all the Jewish holidays that historians find earlier connections to other cultures, probably none have that more than Purim. Historians are busy dissecting all sorts of connections between Mordechai and Esther and the story of Purim with the Persian culture that it came from. And there are certainly pervasive Persian themes in the Megillah, which even traditional commentators acknowledge. So in that context, it's very interesting to read this Medrash where Haman effectively makes the claim of modern historians. And I'm not, God forbid, comparing a historian to this awful anti-Semite Haman who tried to destroy all of the Jews. But according to the Ifea Naf's reading of the Medrash, it is imagining Haman as suggesting the modern historical approach that holidays are fungible. They're not that important or distinct. They're not given by God specifically to the Jewish people. They sort of adapt from different cultures and there's a cross-cultural pollination and the Persian holiday could reappear in a different guise in a different religion. And Haman is suggesting the same thing here. He says that the holidays of Clandus and Saturnalia began with Adam and then they were adapted by pagans. But why can't the Jews be part of our cycle? And the net effect of that is to minimize the significance of the holidays that they are not God's special time to reconnect with the Jews and to have us focused on him, but they're just a random assortment of rituals that come and go and that different cultures adapt for their own purposes. So it's very interesting to read this Medrash where it entertains this whole debate, which is very pronounced when it comes to Purim. Are the holidays specifically given by God for us Jews to connect with him, or are they just a random cultural development? And Haman suggests the latter, but as we're going to see now at step three, God steps in and he explains the real importance and significance of Jewish holidays. So let's try to understand the deeper meaning of God's response in this medrash, the third step, when God says to Haman, because of your evil intent, the Jews are going to have another holiday, which is going to celebrate your downfall. And we're going to try to continue this philosophical interpretation and understand what the Medrash is teaching us. Uh, here, I don't have commentators to rely on, so I'm going to try to continue the approach of the Manasalevi and the Feanaf and understand this third step of the Medrash. Now, our approach so far has been that Haman is attacking the relationship between God and the Jews. He wants to weaken that connection, and he understands that the Jewish calendar, the holidays that we celebrate, including Shabbos, are fundamental to the strength of that connection. And Haman's tactic is to argue that the holidays are just random rituals. There's nothing significant about them that they connect us to God. 
So in order for God's response to be meaningful, he needs to not only reiterate why the original biblical holidays are central, but he also needs to explain what does Purim add, which we're not going to find in the earlier seven. So there has to be something that Purim contributes, which is unique, which protects the earlier seven holidays, and in that way it defends against Haman's accusations against the Jewish holidays. So we're going to try to understand what the unique contribution of Purim is to this framework. Now, there's two broad ways that we traditionally could respond to the historical claim that Purim and other Jewish holidays just develop out of earlier holidays. We could either argue on the historical claim and say that it's just a superficial connection, just because two holidays may have two observances which are related does not show that there's any deeper connection between them. So just because on Halloween and Purim people dress up doesn't indicate that there's some fundamental connection between those two days. So we could argue that, and that's a reasonable response. Or we could take it in a different direction and say that even if there is a cultural influence, even if one of the Jewish holidays did borrow something from general culture, but the fact that it was transformed into being a totally Jewish meaning has removed it from whatever it originally came from. So on this reading, the problem with a Jew celebrating Clandus or Saturnalia, which is a major problem, and the whole first chapter of the Gemara of Zara is all about how Jews cannot be celebrating non-Jewish holidays. But that's only if we're celebrating the same holiday as the non-Jew. So if a Jew were to celebrate Christmas, that would be a problem. But to borrow rituals from a non-Jewish holiday and then totally adapt them and transform them entirely so that we're not celebrating the same holiday, we're using it for our own purposes completely, then that would be okay according to that approach. And furthermore, this would be true not only with regard to holidays and their development, but as an overall approach to Judaism. And the idea would be that Jews throughout their exile lived in various cultures and they learned and picked up certain mannerisms or behaviors or even ideas from those cultures. But the fact that they were able to take them and transform them into their special connection with God purified and elevated those ideas such so that they're now legitimately Jewish ideas and Jewish ways of coming closer to God. So the idea here would be that we as Jews are able to elevate the things we come in contact with over the course of our long history. It's not that we never borrowed any ideas or any practices from any of the cultures we lived in. That does happen naturally. When one group lives in another culture or together with other groups, there's going to be a natural cross-influence and exchange of ideas. So we Jews throughout our history have also undergone that process, but we always came back to the point of our origin, which is our connection with God. And whatever ideas we picked up along the way, we assimilated that back into our overarching mission to be God's people and to be totally committed and devoted to his vision in the world. So we might suggest that on some level, that's the message of Purim, and that's what God is responding to Haman in this medrash. He's trying to tell Haman that you think 
that you can weaken the Jews by bringing them over to your side and by taking them away from Judaism and having them celebrate your holidays and be part of your culture. But in fact, the opposite is going to happen. The Jews are going to take this experience and having been in the Persian exile and they are going to bring it back to their culture and they're going to take all of these events and create a new holiday, which is going to stand for all time as a testament that wherever the Jews find themselves, whatever exile they're in, whatever difficulty they're in, they take those experiences and they bring them back to the Torah instead of abandoning the Torah in order to join their host culture. And that would fit very nicely with what we even know traditionally about the history of Purim because there was a lot of influence from the Persian culture which came back with the Jews when they returned to Israel. So the most famous example is the names of the months of Adar, Nisan, Iyar, Sivan. All of those names were Babylonian names that got assimilated into Jewish culture and we now think of them as the Hebrew months names even though in the Torah none of those names appear and they don't appear anywhere before the book of Esther. So that's an example of something the Jews brought back with them but they elevated into being part of Jewish culture. And as I mentioned before, Purim of all the holidays has the most historical influences from various cultures on our celebration of it. And some of these you could debate with historians, but some of them are clear. So, for example, the dressing up is not an ancient custom. It's not in the Gemara. It's not in the Halacha. But it's a later custom that Jews picked up from some non-Jewish cultures and they brought it into Purim. But that would be very in keeping with the theme of Purim because the point is that even when we find ourselves in other cultures, we're able to continue to remain steadfastly committed to Judaism. And even if we are picking up some of the cultural influences, they get used in the service of God instead of taking us away from God. So the whole historical development of Purim, which has more historical influence from other cultures than our other Jewish holidays, but that's not something to be embarrassed of. That's the very theme of Purim, that wherever we find ourselves, our mission remains the same, even if our mode of dress or the way we speak or other external factors change. But the core mission of Judaism that animates us remains the same eternally. And this interpretation of the Medrash and the idea that we're coming out with fits in nicely with our overall understanding of Purim because Purim is the first holiday of an exile Judaism. The earlier holidays are given at a time when God's majesty and his might and power and presence are openly revealed in the world. But Purim is the time of Hester Panim. It's when God does not reveal himself openly, but he's acting behind the scenes. That's the overall theme of Purim. And this would be an extension of that, that Jewish history is now going to go through many exiles and the Jews will live in many, many different cultures and countries of the world. And they will be through all sorts of experiences. But Purim is what protects the entire system, and instead of Jews assimilating into those cultures where they will be living, they will remember that God is continuing to run the world, and that whatever influences happen to them, they need to bring back into their relationship with God and use it to strengthen their connection with God. So this is our proposed reading of the Medrash. There's three steps to it. Number one is that Haman attacks the holidays, and as we've seen, that's because he understands that the Jewish holidays are the framework for our intense and continuing devotion to God. It reinforces it annually, and each holiday focuses our attention on a different aspect of that. 
Number two, Haman attacks the holidays and he says, at least don't let the Jews take them so seriously. Let's have them think of them as just rituals or times of fun or celebrations like anybody else, but don't let them think of them as moments of intense connection with God. And the response to that is the third step that God says that the meaning of Purim is that wherever the Jews find themselves, they're always aware that God is running the show behind the scenes, even if his presence is not openly manifest. And so everything they come in contact with, all of the cultures and difficulties which are going to happen in Jewish history, all of them contribute to the Jews' close connection and devotion to God instead of pulling the Jews away. They take all of those experiences and they bring them back into Judaism and elevate them as part of their mission and their focus on God's vision in the world.